Right now, getting a development financed is one of the biggest issues in real estate. And when it comes to affordable housing, it's basically impossible without some form of subsidy. That's according to Asland Capital CEO, Jim Simmons, who says capital stacks are becoming more complex and companies are seeking funding in places they've never looked before. Jim formed Aslan in 2019, and the New York-based firm is focused on investment in multifamily, mixed-use and retail assets. Jim and I spoke at BizNow's New York State of the Market event last week, and in this conversation, we talk about the importance of mixed-use developments, raising money from diverse sources, and getting affordable housing built in this challenged economic environment. I started by asking him if the investment thesis of the company has changed because of the pandemic. The opportunity that we saw still exists. Uh, it exists slightly differently. Um, at the time that we did our first um, investments, it was more of value-add play mm-hmm. within, the, within the, the confines of affordable with a small A housing, be it workforce, mixed income, middle income, all the way to deeply affordable. Um, so we were using value-add capital. I think that the opportunity has shifted such that it's now um, a core plus opportunity, which has lower return thresholds and longer hold times. But I think the affordable housing opportunity itself still exists. Okay, so even more so, even considering what we've seen with the pandemic, with the focus on you know the housing crisis. The demand is still there. It is as difficult to produce and to preserve affordable housing. Uh, I think that most domiciles, most municipalities, most cities understand that there's an affordable housing crisis within their borders. I think that the paths taken to solve it differ and the um, bureaucracy and red tape to get solutions to the table um, remains a challenge. So when you first um, kind of went public with the company, you had two deals to announce, one in uh, New York and one in uh, Alexandria. So since then, there's been a lot of discussion about migration patterns, tax, (laughs) politics. Do you see investment opportunities in other parts of the country? How are you shaping your approach? We do. Um, So we, um, our roots are in top 20 MSAs. And out of those 20, there are nine that we have either, we either own today, have owned in the past, um, or have deep connections with the real estate infrastructure. Uh, those include Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Dallas, Atlanta, and Miami. Um, there's some common themes um, with each of those cities. Um, and I would say Dallas excluded the high barriers to entry. Um, it is very tough to build new product, um, and they all have um, an affordable housing crisis such that they can't house uh, the or they can't meet the need of those who need affordable units. So, so where would you say, is there somewhere that has opened up as a new opportunity for you that didn't exist, exist pre-pandemic when you first kicked off the company? Um, I would say um, outside of that list, uh, we've looked hard at, at Nashville. Um, that was one of the ones that people really said was very popular. Correct. <laughs> yeah. um, we've looked at 
Charlotte. Um, we've looked at Seattle. Um, again, all of these, all of these domiciles have similar issues, um, and they're in various stages of both recognition and trying to solve the problem. So the cost of capital is probably the biggest issue um, at the moment. Last year, I heard you on a panel say that the cap stacks are getting even more complex uh, than ever before. Um, where are you seeing as sources for, for financing at the moment and how is that affecting your approach to development and investment? It's a really good question. Um, we have experience in um, both financing as well as um, subsidy as well as um, equity capital coming from multiple sources, right? So we have dealt with the GSEs, the Freddies and Fannies of the world. Um, we've dealt with balance sheet lenders, the JP Morgans of the world. We've dealt with agencies like New York City Agency, like HTC and HFA. Um, it's really a deal by deal analysis of what makes the most sense for a particular transaction. When you're dealing with the production of affordable housing, um, as we spoke today, without some form of subsidy, they just don't pencil. Particularly those transactions where you either have a prevailing wage or a union component where the cost to build is somewhere between 20 to 30% more than a non-union construction job. So subsidy is, is mandatory even if you get the land for free you just can't build a high quality development without having some form of public subsidy so if you looked at new york for example with with 421a off the table um it was there deals that you had in the works that you said we're not doing this until 421a is back there aren't deals that we decided not to do but i can tell you that it was a non-starter for us to even look at them without having 421a or some some semblance of a program similar to that uh to develop you know just a greenfield piece of land without some federal city or state program that we're going to develop under so without a subsidy, it's just not happening for affordable to ha for, for affordable housing? No. Nationally. We can't figure it out. Right. We can't figure it out. There, there may be groups that can, but, but we can't make a pencil. You, you mentioned mission capital. You said that 15 years ago, people didn't even talk about affordable housing as, as something to, that people wanted to invest into. So even in that environment where now it is something that people want, because you mentioned it is not very risky. You know, you can rely on it because the demand is endless and the supply is desperately needed. So even in that environment, a deal's falling over because you don't have the subsidies. It seems like such a missed opportunity if people want to invest in it, but you don't have subsidies. Yeah, well, there, therein lies the conundrum, right? That you have um, capital that seeking to invest, um, particularly institutional capital. Like Goldman, right? Nuveen, they all Correct. want to invest in those Correct. types of projects. Um, and you have a dearth of projects. So um, for those that do get done, um, there is competition. So um, we invest with Nuveen, we invest with Goldman, we invest with, with several others um, that I believe are looking to put more to work within the asset class. Is it because it is, is it just about economics or is it about, you know, the big phrase doing well by doing good? I think it's a, I think it's a bit of, of both. 
I mean, if, if a deal does not make economic sense, it's not going to get done. Let's start there, mm. right? So the investors are fiduciaries, as am I, um, and the return that you underwrite is the return you're expected to generate. Mm. Having said that, you can do that, and you can also have good outcomes that are beyond just the economic return to the investor. And if you keep in mind those good outcomes, um, it can, in some instances, enhance your returns if you are doing things like building a more sustainable building, building a more cost-efficient and effective building, building um, having a building that has a lower carbon footprint. All of those things in today's day and age um, may and then oftentimes do make an asset more valuable. It makes it more livable. It makes it run more efficiently, brings down your cost of operations. All of those good things that one may not have done if you didn't have a mandate, at the end of the day will hopefully add to the bottom line. And we've, we've been, um, we have seen that it has positively benefited our assets. So, so back again to the, the question of sources of financing, is there someone that you've got financing from that you are like, wow, we would not have got that? We would not have had to turn there or we would not have had to seek that sort of financing, say, three or four years ago? Um, we did our first transaction, our first financing transaction um, with the city of New York just recently. Okay, and that had never happened before? It never happened. Not financing. I'd mm-hmm. done a, a ton of, of business with the city of New York as a regulator, as a provider of subsidy, um, as a purveyor of programs. I worked very, very closely, but this was the first time that we used them for, for debt. So they literally provided debt to you? That's correct. That's correct. Was it expensive? Was it wasn't as, no, it was not as expensive as what one would find in the market. So, mm-hmm. but the gap wasn't huge. Like it wasn't three points, right? So it was, it was certainly cheaper, particularly given the fact that interest rates were rising during the period of time that we were closing the transaction. Um, so because it's the city's money, they have the ability to hold rates steady. Um, so that was certainly very helpful. But they understood that the deal underwrote at X, and if they were to raise the rates, the deal would underwrite at something less than X. So in 2021, you helped put together Tishman Spire's um, Harvard um, development, which sort of, I believe the uh, the mandate of it was that 5% of the funding had to keep come from people of colour, from black and Latino people. That's correct. Uh, have you done any other deals similar to that? Um, we are, we have not, but we are on the precipice of doing several transactions similar to that. Um, part of it has to do with where we are in a cycle, mm-hmm. and that transaction volume, as we talked about today, is down significantly um, this calendar year versus last calendar year. Um, but our expectation is that in 2024, we'll do several other transactions similar to that, and um, definitely with Tishman. So those are deals where it's a set amount has to come from people of no, color? No, no. And this is, this is the, the beauty of the relationship, which there okay, is no so, mandate. Okay. There is no mandate. Explain to me the it's, deal because it was pitched as that it had to be, the, the financing had to come from people of color, right? 5% of it. So to be specific, the Harvard deal is the Harvard deal. Right. Well, that was and, Harvard's and demand it was, on Tishman's <laughs> it, it, it was um, 
a goal that 5% of the equity come from people of color. And that goal was, I think, exceeded. I think we had more than, than Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, I believe so, it. So that was the Harvard deal. Mm-hmm. Prospectively, what we do with Tishman is not mandated, mm-hmm. right? So this is um, Tishman's relationship with, with Aslan um, and my relationship personally with Rob Spire in that Rob believed that what we did at Harvard was a good thing and that it can and should be replicated. And so we are extrapolating the success of the Harvard transaction into future transactions where there is no mandate. So the whole point is to seek equity from people of color, but not with a set, not with a set mandate. That's correct. And is it is it working without the mandate? I mean, well, we, we'll, we're hoping so. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll see because again, we haven't done another one because of where we are in a cycle, and there aren't a ton of transactions that either of us are doing together. But we have a pipeline of transactions that um, I expect, and in twenty twenty four, we'll announce that we've done. So NBA stars with that particular deal, Kyle Lowry and uh, Drew Holiday invested in that deal, which drew some pretty major headlines. Did you get to meet them as part of it, putting it together? Um, and have there been any updates, calls on the project? Because it's, it's always very fascinating to hear about celebrities participating in real estate. Yeah, so the answer to your first question is no. I have not You didn't met get to them. meet them? No, no, I haven't met them. There were... Are you, are you so a fan? So specifically, I am a basketball fan. Okay. I'm a basketball fan. Um, specifically, um, the the point of the article, so it was covered in the press, and you know my and I was interviewed, and and my commentary was those were two individuals out of probably a uh, hundred plus individuals. Two very famous individuals. Two very famous. (laughs) So for me, personally, the better story is that there were 150 other people who are not famous, who are very, very successful in their field of endeavor, Mm -hmm. who prior to this transaction did not have access to a high quality investment such as this, that felt that it was worthy of their dollars and opening the opportunity to people like that and these are doctors lawyers private equity people tech people that again are not bold-faced names but but wealthy (laughs) with access to capital who have access to capital who invested in a project so uh, i wanted to get that big picture story out because oftentimes and this is particularly true when people are, are thinking of people of color with money, they think of athletes, entertainers, uh, and alike. And like most groups of people, we're not monolithic. There are people such as myself who are not famous who have been doing what I've been doing for the last 30 years who have accumulated an amount of wealth and would like to have the opportunity to invest in projects such as that. This is probably opening a little bit of a can of worms, but I do recall you saying to the Wall Street Journal at the time that uh, people of colour, um, wealthy people of colour, had not in, had the chance to invest in projects like that. Like most things in this world, it is based upon relationships, mm-hmm. right? And there is a specific phrase 
of um, having individuals invest in one's transactions, which is called friends and family. And if you are not a friend of someone who has a transaction or family of someone who has a transaction, you won't get invited to invest in that transaction. So what we were trying to do there was to broaden the aperture of who is included within friends and family. Right. And so um, the natural connectivity that I may have within my sphere of influence is going to be different than what Rob Spire has in his sphere of influence. And so we came together um, along with a couple of other people, um, uh, including Rudy Klein, um, that said, let's look at our networks, broadly speaking, and see who um, would be likely to invest. And so that's how it came together. Uh, and, um, you know, it was a success. Were there a lot of women who invested? Yeah, um, I'm, I, I would, from, from my group, uh, yes. I, I'd have to look at the numbers, but yes. How has the recent um, capital markets downturn affected momentum of getting people of colour access to deals like that? Not particularly, no. What, what, this, what the exercise showed me was that there is demand um, on the part of people of colour to invest. Mm-hmm. Um, and given my knowledge of a relationship with Rob, that he was willing to entertain doing more than just what was mandated right. by Harvard. I've spoken to Joe Ritchie about this project in the past. And we spoke I, was, I was distracted because <laughs> yes. I heard the noise. <laughs> we talked about it in the past in the context of his role as a chief diversity officer. Um, and he has said that projects like that are how, how he sees the future of diversity within real estate. Um, he sees it as it has to be durable and it has to be connected to the business side. What's your take on that as someone who worked so closely with him or so closely on that particular deal? Yeah, there, there has to be a real commitment on the part of the industry writ large um, to bring individuals, A, who are not in the industry into the industry and make it appealing, mm-hmm. and then B, for those who are there, um, who make it in, uh, to help foster their careers and help their personal growth within the industry. And that's as a participant, right? As an investor, um, I think it, it just takes opening up those investment opportunities to people who ordinarily wouldn't see it. And, and they want to see results, right? Like they want to see the returns on their money. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But, but look, um, th- those of us who've been doing this for a long time, it's really hard to not be successful and to be around for a long period of time. Right. So uh, Tishman's performance speaks for itself. I hope that ours, even though we've only been around five years, um, speaks for itself such that um, garnering investment dollars is not the hardest part, right? The, the hard part is, not hard for us, before the industry at large is, is saying um, the opportunity should not just be specific to the five or six people I've been doing transactions with over the last 20 years. Mm. Let me think about doing business 
or attracting investors that's from uh, a base that I may not have. What kind of advice would you give to someone who does raise money, someone of your experience and and, um, access, and who wants to get access to a greater range of people, so it's not the same five people? I mean, how do they, how do you practically do that? Talk to me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm serious. Um, You can talk to me. Look, the reason why Rob and I had the conversation to begin with was because he... uh, sought out people that he knew and he asked the question, right? Um, I've known Rob probably almost 20 years now. And so we had the conversation and it didn't start with, hey, uh, Jim, do you know people who want to invest? It just started with him, let's have like an interpersonal conversation about investment opportunities, whatever. And he asked me, he said, look, I have something going on. I know you do multi, so you may not be interested, but I'm going to send it to you anyway. That's how it started. So he sent me the transaction. I was like, wow, this is super interesting. I like to invest personally. And then it mushroomed from there. So was it in the context of, I want to get more people who have never invested in real estate before into it? Or is it just, I need money for this particular deal? I mean, I guess it's a bit of both. I think, I think it started with, um, I need capital. There wasn't a specific mandate to go after people who hadn't invested in mm-hmm. real estate. It was capital um, from a specific demographic, right? People of color. Um, Right, people of color. Um, Some of the people, I think that there were very few people who hadn't invested in real estate Mm. as a general statement. Yeah. um, Because these are all accredited investors, right? So they are, they're they're not... It's not just anyone with a bit of money lying around. Correct. These these are accredited investors. They're all savvy. Mm. So... Um, they certainly had exposure to real estate, but but the issue was high quality, institutional, um, that pension funds, insurance companies, um, sovereign wealth funds get to invest in. Uh, individuals typically don't, unless you're a friend or a family, <laughs> right? So that that's the the idea. You know, diversity um, and the approach of real estate has been a big topic in recent years. Um, we, every year, have been tracking the levels of diversity, both racial and gender, at the kind of top levels of the real estate industry. And something that I've noticed coming up in sort of the last year or so is this concept of diversity fatigue. Are you seeing any of that? Have you heard anything of that? I know that you're not in, like, DEI, but, but do you come across that? Because people are like, oh, we've over-indexed on this. I've heard it. <laughs> What do you think? <laughs> you ask me, do I believe it? I mean, I know no. you don't believe it. <laughs> no, I don't believe it. I mean, what's driving when you're starting, it? When you're starting from zero to get to five out of a hundred, that can't be fatigue because we're not at a hundred, right? And the, the, I think that when people, you know, the diversity as a word or ESG all of that has been in many ways um, demonized or um, put within a context of being something bad and of taking opportunity from person X and giving it to person Y, not based upon merit, but based upon some other metrics. Mm. Um, And the big picture of diversity is just saying that 
as minorities or people of color. You don't even have the opportunity to prove whether you are um, the right candidate or the right person because you're not even invited in the room, right? Mm. The room itself has been closed. Yeah. And the room is comprised of individuals who have relationships and they've been doing business with each other for years. And they control so the door. Saying, right. And all we're saying is we want to be in the room such that we can prove that we are as good or better, right? So um, if you look at any statistics that you want, it, it can't be that 98% of anything is destined for one group of people. That all the talent is concentrated in one group of people such that everybody else gets their 1% or, or half a percent or 2%. And so in any um, sociological study, um, talent is as widely dispersed as anything. So uh, it should follow that if women are half of the population, that women should have half of the roles at anything, right? Half the leadership positions. You look at the CEO list, I mean, barely anyone. Right, so there is something structural, which we all understand, as to why women don't have half of those thoughts. And it's historical, it's structural, and I don't think anyone debates that relative to women, but there is a debate relative to people of color, right? It's a, it's really? a debate. Oh, most assuredly. That there is some other reason why there are not people of color in the proportion of the population. You think with women, people are saying this is wrong and something's going wrong here, but with people of colour, people think there's, a, there's some sort of explanation that's not structural? Uh, yeah, that's correct. So is that feeding into the backlash or like that feeding into diverse, diversity um, fatigue, do you think? I think that it's, uh, the, the backlash has as much to do with, with where we are as a country politically and the polarisation as anything. So I don't... I am not a politician, um, and I don't pretend to be Luckily. one. Luckily. <laughs> I don't pretend to be one. Uh, but uh, pendulums swing one way or the other. You hope that they settle at equilibrium, but whenever there is uh, a movement, there's always a backlash. And that's been true throughout the history, certainly, of this country and, and of most. I don't want to keep you too much longer because I know you're going to get on with your day and maybe chat to some people at the event. But, um, I mean, this is a this is a very interesting discussion because I've had a conversation just this week with someone who works in diversity and she says politically and things like the Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action has sort of leached into conversations where people are anxious about whether or not they can have diversity programs. And this is just... And she works specifically in diversity training it's not less work for her, it's more, because people want to talk to her more. But she still feels like it's not getting the funding, it's not getting, you know, it's not getting the focus, and there is a, a, a pushback and an anxiety. Yeah, look, everything that's happened recently has manifested itself in really one of a couple of ways. If you are a senior executive at a firm, or CEO at a firm, or on a board, your thought is, for those with the best intentions, 
what are our potential liabilities if we proceed on a path of quote-unquote diversity. Right. For those with not so great intentions, that is the reason and the excuse for not pursuing diversity, because we might get sued or because of the Supreme Court decision. Even though the Supreme Court decision had nothing to do with corporate America, had to do with universities. universities. <laughs> but the extrapolation is, uh, this gives us a reason not to. You think it's a pursue. cloak that they can hide under a little bit? For some bit. people. Yeah. For some people. Not saying all, but for some. So for some people, but not all, uh, do you still feel positive about what could be happening in the industry? I think that good people will do good things. And my hope is that enough good people, uh, that there are more good than not. And that, you know, there's, there's always shades of gray between right and wrong. Mm. But doing good things like the Harvard deal, us and my firm doing good transactions, generating good, positive, strong returns for our investors. The more of us that are doing it, we no longer are seen as exceptions, right? And we are seen as We being as people of color? Yeah, we being people of color and investors of color, right? That, that there's nothing different about us at all <laughs> other, <laughs> other than a definition that's imposed by really randomness. Jim, thank you very much. Thank you. 